This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It was the decade of that sappy Lee Greenwood song. The decade of Ronald Reagan's platitudes and almost blatant recruitment movies for the military like Top Gun. Rambo 2, so different from the cynical themes of First Blood, by the way. An officer and a gentleman, and tragically, even the likes of Iron Eagle. Yeah, there were a few anti-war movies. Platoon, Full Metal Jacket come to mind. But anti-war movies of the 1980s were almost all about Vietnam specifically. So they could potentially be interpreted as simply being against that particular war or how that particular war was fought or whatever. But films that seriously questioned the premises of the American war machine and the military-industrial complex that feeds it and profits from it, especially films of decent quality, were pretty sparse. Even comedies like Private Benjamin and Stripes, while they occasionally poked fun at the institution, at the end of the day were basically pro-military. But there were exceptions. Aside from the anti-Vietnam movies, there were films like Red Dawn, which, while still full of patriotic jingoism, at least showed regular people fighting as guerrilla irregular militias where the conventional military had failed to keep out the communist menace. So it had a DIY sort of thing to it which is why a lot of survivalist and anti-government types still love Red Dawn, the original one, to this day. And then there were a handful of sci-fi and sci-fi comedies, often aimed at younger audiences, that actually took on at least some of the issues that were related to critically evaluating the military-industrial complex. This is CJ. Welcome to episode 114 of the Dangerous History Podcast. Three anti-military-industrial complex films from the 1980s. This is a threefer DHP movies episode. I'm going to be talking about three films that bucked the zeitgeist of the 80s in this episode, and they are, in chronological order of when they came out, War Games, Real Genius, and Short Circuit. But first, some housekeeping. First on the docket, Patreon shoutouts. Thanks to Randy and to DJ for stepping up to help support the show. 
over at patreon.com slash profcj. Thank you both very much. And just as a reminder to everybody, if you sign up to support the show for a minimum of $1 per episode, and more is certainly welcome than appreciated, but for just a minimum of $1 per episode, I will thank you by name in the next show that I produce after you've signed up. And in addition, you'll have access to special bonus episodes of the Dangerous History Podcast that are available nowhere else, that are only available to the Patreon supporters of this show. And one more recently added benefit that a bunch of you have already started to take advantage of in a good way is the private Facebook group, which I've named Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors. If you're signed up at Patreon at a buck per episode or more, you are also eligible to, if you so desire, join this private Facebook group. And just as a reminder, if you are a Patreon supporter or about to become one, and you are applying to join the Facebook group, or you already have applied to join the Facebook group, please, 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 if your name on Patreon and your Facebook name are not the same, please contact me to let me know who you are on Patreon. Because if your handle on Patreon is Attila the Hun, and you use your actual name on Facebook, which is Bob Smith, well, when I see Bob Smith wants to join the group, and I go over to Patreon to look for, you know, to verify that there's a donor named Bob Smith that's signed up and up to date and everything, then I don't see Bob Smith. I see Attila the Hun, but of course, I don't know that Attila the Hun is Bob Smith. So please, please, please make sure to contact me to let me know if the name you're under on Patreon and the name you're under on Facebook are not the same. Anyway, please, if it's different, just just let me know, and I'll be happy to let you in. Also, you must be current on your Patreon donations in order for me to allow you into the to the Facebook private group. This is something I'm offering as another thank you, another little bit of value back to those who have gone above and beyond the call of just listening to the show and helping spread the word and are actually financially helping me keep this thing going and growing. And so I can't let you in if you're not current on Patreon. In other words, if your your payments have been declined for any reason whatsoever. So if you want to join, please check to make sure that you are current on that. And whether your credit card that you originally put it under expired or whatever else the thing might be, if you want in on the Patreon, um, sorry, in on the private Facebook group, got to make sure you're signed up, you're up to date, you're current on donations. And again, let me know if your names on the two places are not the same. But I'm hoping this Facebook group will be something cool. I'll post some additional material there that I don't share elsewhere, a little bit more behind the scenes, also some a little bit more kind of informal back and forth is what I'm hoping for. But in the great spirit of spontaneous order arising from voluntary social interactions among people, I'm trying not to centrally plan the Facebook group too much. Anyway, next order of business, big thank yous regarding some other things I got recently from the Amazon DHP wishlist. Huge thanks to Sergio for not one, but two excellent books that I'm very excited to have received. The first is the book Maverick Marine, which is a biography of the great Smedley Butler, author of the famous War is a Racket, and I'm going to be doing a DHP Heroes feature on him in the next probably month or two sometime. 
So this biography will be a big help. It looks like it's a really well-done, serious academic biography. And the second book from Serge Hio is Society Against the State by Pierre Clostra. And I think I'm pronouncing his last name right, but it's French, so I could be wrong. And Society Against the State is one of these books I've heard of for a while and kind of had on my list of, I want to read that someday. That sounds interesting. And um, I'm looking forward to reading it when I have a chance. It's a book I've seen referenced, I believe, in some of the works of James C. Scott, author of The Art of Not Being Governed. And I think also a while back, one or two listeners have mentioned it to me as well in emails or whatever. So thanks again, Sergio, for getting me two excellent books to help me out in this show. And as always, I'll put the link to the official Dangerous History Podcast Amazon wishlist in the show notes. So if you have the horrible problem of having more money or Amazon credit than you know what to do with, and you want to help me out in some small way with this show, go over there and pick something out, send it to me, and I will very much appreciate it. And we'll thank you in the next episode I make after I receive it. One last reminder, I will be at the Midwest Peace and Liberty Conference in Delton, Michigan, the last weekend of August, and I will be speaking there on Saturday as well. And here's Lou from Freedom Fiends with a little bit more on that conference. Are you sick and tired of peaceful people being banned from so-called liberty events? How about liberty festivals that are more regulated than a government housing area? Now you can do something about it. The Michigan Peace and Liberty Coalition is proud to announce the 4th Annual Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest. It will be held Friday, August 26th through Monday the 29th at the Circle Pine Center in Delton, Michigan, just outside of Kalamazoo. There will be canoeing, kayaking, hiking, fishing, swimming, presentations, discussions, and bacon. Lots of bacon. This event is both adult and family friendly and best of all, no overbearing central planners. There will be free... Freedom Fiends and Bipcop merch while supplies last. And don't forget the longer leashes for the Bow Wows and Woof Woofs. Round up your friends and family members and get them registered today at mplfest.org. That's Mike, Papa, Lima, Fest.org. All right, thanks, Lou. And on to the meat of this episode. I'm going to talk about each of these three films in turn, and then at the end I'll mention some themes and things I see in common between them and that sort of thing. So we'll be going through these films in chronological order of when they came out, which also coincidentally happens to be a descending order of their critical reception from best reviewed to least best reviewed. Now, all of these films feature a heavy sci-fi technology element, though, of course, to our eyes today, since the latest of these films is 30 years old this year, a lot of the high-tech stuff they show in there appears to us laughably primitive. It's these very primitive computers and sometimes even analog technologies and so on. Two of these three films, Real Genius and Short Circuit, also blend in some comedy to varying degrees of success. So we've got kind of a little bit of hybrid of sci-fi and comedy. And here's the obligatory warning of spoiler alert. There will be plot spoilers in my discussions of these films, but I don't think that should be a big deal considering A, like I said, the newest quote-unquote film of the three is 30 years old, and B, none of these movies, let's face it, have like major plot twists or anything like that. So anyway, here we go. Our first film for discussion is War Games, which came out in 1983. 
So this would be during Reagan's first term when Cold War tensions were ratcheted up pretty high. This is before Gorbachev came to power in the Soviet Union and started easing some of the tensions between the Soviet Union and America. War Games was directed by director John Badham, who first became a well-known director for directing, of all things, Saturday Night Fever in the late 70s. He also directed our third film on this list today, Short Circuit, among other films. And War Games stars Matthew Broderick, a very young-looking Matthew Broderick. This would have been pre-Ferris Bueller, as far as I know, was his first kind of significant starring role in this film. It also stars Dabney Coleman and Ali Sheedy, who stars in Short Circuit as well, which, again, also was directed by Batum. So the film starts off, there's a surprise drill at a NORAD missile launch site, where the guys working there don't know it's a drill. There's a simulation of a Soviet attack that they don't know is a simulation. And some of them just can't bring themselves to turn the launch key. So NORAD decides that they ought to take the human element out of the loop and put the decision-making on this sort of thing into the hands of a computer. Just automate it so that you don't have to worry about a military officer, either because he's not sure if it's a false alarm or he just morally, when push comes to shove, can't kill millions of people by turning a key. Take that out, put it into the hands of a computer. And the computer they're going to put it into the hands of is called Whopper, which is spelled in all caps W-O-P-R. It stands for War Operations Plan Response. So that's how the movie opens up, and then we flash to Matthew Broderick, and uh, we find he's playing a young computer hacker and high school student named David. And David hacks into his school's computer system to change his grade after he fails a class, and he also changes the grade of his female friend that it's pretty clear he's got a thing for, Jennifer, again played by Ali Sheedy. And later, while hacking around sort of on the primitive dial-up internet, trying to figure out information about an upcoming video game, I think is what he's doing, he happens to come across, make contact with, a weird computer that he manages to get into. And it lists games once he gets into the system. And most of them are normal kind of strategy games like chess or checkers. But then on the list also are things like chemical warfare and global nuclear war. Now, David gets kind of to the main menu of this computer, but he can't get into it. And he goes to some older friends who are also hackers. And they help him figure out a backdoor password for the computer based on figuring out who it was who designed it. Which, by the way, him discovering this information comes courtesy of a research montage scene. And you gotta love 80s movie montages. They're really hard to beat. They're some of my favorite things in the world. And by the way, in this particular research montage, you see, of all things, young Broderick using, gasp, a card catalog. So here you are in this ostensibly high-tech sci-fi movie, high-tech for 33 years ago, and one of the ways that a computer hacker finds information is to go to a card catalog and rifle through cards with Dewey Decimal information on it. And I'm just old enough that I can remember doing that. 
By the time I was wrapping up my grade school years, the physical card catalog system, I think they were still in libraries, but they were there as like a backup, I guess, in case of the apocalypse or something. And even by the time I think I was in middle school, generally computers had replaced card catalogs as ways to search library catalogs. But I'm just old enough that I can remember when the card catalog was still the thing in kind of my elementary school years. So it was kind of amusing, hilarious, and nostalgic to see in this, for the time, high-tech sci-fi movie with this computer hacker. And he's like, yeah, let me go to the, let me go to the card catalog. Turns out the designer of this system that David has made contact with and wants to get into is a programmer who worked on artificial intelligence named Stephen Falcon, who is now listed as deceased. So armed with this information, David logs into the system under Falcon's credentials, and um, he figures out Falcon's password is the name of his deceased son, I think. And David even hooks up a voice device once he's in in contact with the computer so that what the computer says is audible. And of course, you get probably the most iconic snippets from the movie from this computer voice saying things. It is a speak and spell like voice. And if you don't know what a speak and spell is, look it up. I don't even know if they still make them. It is by today's standards, a ridiculously primitive electronic toy. But back in the early to mid eighties, man, we thought they were cool. And this speak-and-spell voice, which is even more robotic-sounding than, say, Stephen Hawking's voice module, says, Shall we play a game? Of course, it turns out the computer that David is now communicating with is, in fact, NORAD's Whopper computer, and the computer calls itself Joshua, again named after Falcon's son. David asks to play the game Global Nuclear War, and David decides to play the Soviet side. And as the game unfolds... NORAD is getting signals that lead them to think that there is a real attack going on. Now, luckily, some of them manage to figure out what's happening before the U.S. launches nukes in retaliation. And later that day, David sees mention of the news, mention on the news, excuse me, of this false alarm that happened at NORAD. And shortly after that, the computer gets back in touch with David to continue the game. Now, the feds nab David because they're able to track down, you know, who kind of did this and got in touch with Whopper, and they bring him to NORAD's headquarters under, I think it's Cheyenne Mountain. They're, of course, you know, wondering if he's working for the Soviets or something like that, and all I can say is it's lucky for Ferris Bueller that he was doing this in the mid-80s. Because if he did something like this today... Best case scenario, I think he'd be looking at a couple of decades without trial, in Guantanamo, with hundreds of waterboardings and possible side orders of testicle electrocution or who the hell knows what. But luckily, it was less of an authoritarian Soviet-style police state in the USA 30-some-odd years ago. Of course, worst-case scenario, if you did what David did today, the president would probably decide that it's just not worth the risk of trying to arrest such a dangerous terrorist as Ferris Bueller, and would probably just dispatch a flying robot to rain hellfire missiles on him. So warning to those of you listening, do not try this at home today unless you're willing to run the risk of waterboarding, testicle electrocution, and possible drone assassination. Now David continues to interact with the computer, and he finds out that basically the computer can't quite tell the difference between a game and reality. And 
David tries to convince the NORAD people that he knows what's causing the problem, but the feds go to drag him away to throw him in prison or something, and David manages to escape from them inside the NORAD facility, and then is able to exit the facility by blending in with a group of tourists who are coming through. Now, the actions of the Whopper computer, or Joshua, continue to escalate the tensions and ratchet up the DEFCON levels because they're telling NORAD incorrectly that the Soviets are behaving in a very threatening way. They're mobilizing, you know, submarines and things to seemingly get ready for a first strike. And there's a part where they think, I think it's Soviet bomber aircraft are flying over Alaska. But when F-16s are mobilized to intercept them, they find nothing there. Meanwhile, David makes it to Oregon and meets Jennifer there. And they go find Stephen Falcon, who is obviously not dead, but who faked his own death and has been living as a semi-recluse for some time on an island. And Falcon reveals that he left because he couldn't get Joshua or the humans at NORAD to understand that a nuclear war simply cannot be won. In fact, he compares it to tic-tac-toe and how once you know what you're doing with the game of tic-tac-toe, the game is always inevitably a tie. And Falcon has become totally pessimistic. He believes humanity is, is just doomed to destruction, but the... Plucky idealistic youngsters convince him to try to stop the escalation of tensions that are happening. Back at NORAD, the Joshua computer is attempting to launch a real counterattack on the Soviet Union. And David and Jennifer and Falcon arrive and convince the NORAD people not to launch a counterattack that the Soviet attack they're seeing is not real. And the NORAD people stand down, and the attack does in fact turn out to be fake. However, Joshua then tries to launch a counterattack on its own, a real one, and is resisting NORAD's attempts to stop it from doing so. And it's revealed that they can't even simply shut off the power to the Joshua computer, because if they do that, the computer will interpret that as a Soviet strike and will immediately launch, kind of with its last electronic gasp. David realizes a way to convince Joshua that nuclear war is unwinnable. He gets Joshua to play against itself in tic-tac-toe. And Joshua plays through countless scenarios of the game and learns that not all games are winnable. The computer then plays through a bunch of scenarios of nuclear war and realizes the exact same is true of that. And Joshua then concludes of nuclear war, a strange game. The only way to win is not to play. It stops trying to launch a nuclear war, and NORAD cranks down its DEFCON to normal levels. And the movie ends right there. Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove looked at the problem of putting nuclear war decision-making into the hands of crazy people. War Games looks at the problem of automating those decisions, and also adds the further explicit caveat that nuclear war is a game that should never be played. That famous line from the Speak and Spell sounding computer, the only way to win is not to play. Now, both of these films, Dr. Strangelove and War Games, brought up these issues, and at the times they were made, much less was even publicly known about just how many times during the Cold War one side or the other, or both, almost launched missiles due to things like equipment malfunctions and accidents and so on. And in each case, it was some combination of luck and or some cool-headed mid-level person who saved the day by standing down or waiting for more information because they had some gut instinct that 
they shouldn't initiate the apocalypse unless they're really sure what's happening. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Interestingly, on the specific subject of AI, War Games comes down on the side of AI, at least after David taught it that some games are unwinnable, making the right choice. Choosing life. Something that also happens to AI in another Batam film we'll be discussing later, Short Circuit. And this kind of optimistic view of AI is, of course, a very stark contrast to movies like Terminator and many other kind of darker treatments of AI that you find in science fiction, wherein the AI most of the time decides something along the lines of humans are defective and need to just get out of the picture. And which AI scenario is most likely in the real world? Will AI get to a point where it decides human beings suck and need to just be cleansed of the earth as, as sort of a final solution to the to the human problem? Or will AI kind of have some sympathy and learn from us and learn to appreciate us despite all of our flaws? I don't know. I honestly don't know. And I don't think anybody really does until it happens. Now, of the three films I'm talking about in this episode, War Games is the best reviewed and best remembered film. It currently holds a 93% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes, pretty impressive, and with a budget of $12 million, it grossed almost $80 million, and in the early to mid-1980s, $80 million was real money. So it was, in terms of overall quality and success, I think pretty clearly number one of the three movies I'm talking about today. By the way, director John Badham, who again also directed Short Circuit, is a really intriguing character. He was born in the UK to a father who was a U.S. Army general and a mother who was an English-born actress. His sister Mary starred in... John Badham's sister Mary starred in the film To Kill a Mockingbird. Badham himself studied philosophy and drama at Yale University. And it's interesting that at least two of the movies he's made that I'm aware of are kind of anti-military industrial complex. He made war games this son of a general who went to Yale University. He made war games and he made Short Circuit. He may have made other films that dealt critically with the military-industrial complex, I don't know. I don't claim to have seen everything he's ever directed, but it's very interesting that the son of a U.S. Army general would, would make these kinds of movies. So that's War Games, and the next film I wanted to talk about is Real Genius, which came out in 1985. Real Genius was directed by Martha Coolidge and stars Val Kilmer back when he was still a fairly good actor and still in at least decent movies, which he hasn't been for a long time as far as I can tell. And another guy who I don't think was in much else named Gabe Jarrett. And Coolidge, by the way, Martha Coolidge, I don't know if she's related to Calvin or not, has directed a fair number of other movies, none of which I think I've seen other than Real Genius. And more recently, she's done a fair amount of TV work, some episodes for different series here and there, some of which I have seen. The movie Real Genius opens with shots of 
kind of diagrams for various weapons and military vehicles as the opening credits are rolling. And the jazz tune, You Took Advantage of Me, plays. Very interesting. This really sets the tone for how the film deals with the relationship between young, well-intentioned geniuses and the military-industrial complex. So at the start of the film, a group of military and CIA men are watching a video presentation about Crossbow, which is the name for a laser-armed spaceship that can kill people who are on the ground on Earth. And the video features the slogan, There's no defense like a good offense. Now, the weapon apparently isn't of much help in a conventional battlefield. I think there was an actual army general or somebody there who's like, that thing wouldn't really help us in a tank battle or whatever. But what it really would be effective and what apparently the CIA is interested in it for is it would be useful at targeting and killing specific individuals, i.e. assassinations. By the way, we know that in real life, Various parts of the American military-industrial complex, including the CIA, have worked on things like this and related ideas. And if you want to read some real stuff about it, simply Google the phrase Defense Science Task Force Directed Energy. That's Defense Science Task Force Directed Energy, and you'll find a PDF from the Defense Department about this. It'll probably be the first thing that'll come up if you Google that phrase. Now, it turns out that the crossbow laser weapon is, at least at the time of that scene, only theoretical, but they are determined to figure it out one way or another. Next, we cut to a scene where we meet a high school prodigy named Mitch Taylor, who is played by Gabe Jarrett, and he's informed by an apparently famous professor named Jerry Hathaway, who is played by William Atherton, that young Mitch Taylor has gotten into the fictional Pacific Technical University. Atherton, by the way, who plays this Professor Hathaway, is played by the red-headed character actor who made quite a career playing douchebags in the 80s and 90s. If you don't recognize the name, you'll know who I'm talking about most likely. He was the douchebag EPA guy in Ghostbusters. He was the douchebag reporter in Die Hard, to name just a couple. You probably know who I'm talking about. He even has a touch, I think, of William F. Buckley Jr. in his appearance and his mannerisms and his speech. And I don't know if that's how he is off camera or if that's just part of his affect as a character actor who's so often cast to play arrogant douchebags. But whether it's real, really part of his personal mannerisms or not, the slight touch of Buckleyisms really is perfect to play an arrogant douchebag. By the way, the next DHP episode I'm planning on making is going to talk about how the kind of anti-war, anti-imperialist, so-called old right was booted out and replaced by the uber-hawkish new right in the early Cold War years, and William F. Buckley Jr. plays a central role in that, in getting rid of the anti-imperialist right in American politics and replacing it with these super hawks. And I may down the road do an entire DHP villains feature on Buckley, because I think he's just such a horrible character in so many ways. And he was Yale Skull and Bones CIA, too. Now, young Mitch Taylor in the film is going to be working under a physics genius, a student named Chris Knight, who is played by Val Kilmer. Mitch is starting college at only age 15, and it's 
revealed that the only person who started working in this program at a younger age than Mitch was in fact Chris Knight himself, who is now a senior at the college. And Mitch and Chris have kind of a classic buddy movie conflicting dynamic where Chris is always urging Mitch to be more spontaneous and fun loving. And Mitch is, you know, trying to be more square and that sort of thing. So there's the tension there. Mitch quickly realizes that Chris, despite being a genius, is also kind of a slacker and a prankster and a smartass, and that the dorm that he's staying in, in which Chris also lives, has really more of a wild party atmosphere than he expected, despite it being full of geniuses. Kind of imagine if Revenge of the Nerds were trying to run Animal House, maybe. Mitch also meets a cute female nerd genius who's also hyperactive, named Jordan, who's played by Michelle Mayrink who, by the way, also played a female nerd character in Revenge of the Nerds. And she did kind of a number of nerdy but cute girl-next-door type roles in the 80s before, according to the interwebs, quitting acting altogether in 1989 to become a serious Zen Buddhist. Mitch also meets a graduate student named Kent, who is very pretentious and is always trying to suck up to Professor Hathaway. And later, Kent rats Chris and the other nerds out when they throw a pool party in a classroom after hours. And after that, Chris and Mitch get into a prank war with Kent, culminating in a prank where Chris and Mitch knock Kent unconscious with some sort of sleeping gas, and then, while he's passed out, install a radio transmitter in his teeth that they then use to speak to him in a deep voice claiming to be God, and Kent believes it, thinks God is telling him what to do, and among other things, this voice of God reprimands Kent for playing with himself. Now, it turns out that Professor Hathaway is taking CIA money to work on their crossbow laser project. He's also not coincidentally building himself a massive new house. It's also revealed that an eccentric older guy who comes in and out of Chris and Mitch's dorm via a secret passage in their closet is a guy named Laszlo Hollyfield, or Hollyfeld. Chris tells Mitch that Hollyfeld was the top genius of kind of last generation at the department, and that he basically went crazy when he found out that his work was being used to kill people. Professor Hathaway puts increasing pressure on Chris to get the project done by a certain deadline, and when Chris fails to get enough done on the laser, Hathaway threatens to fail him entirely. Now, with the help of a classic 80s getting stuff done montage, and this movie, by the way, has multiple montages, Chris gets stuff done. He aces the final, and despite sabotage from Kent, manages to get the laser working and with even more power than the original specs asked for. Now, as they're celebrating their success at accomplishing this, Chris, Mitch, and their friends are approached by Laszlo, that eccentric former student of the department, who points out that the only use, the only use for the type of laser that they've in fact made, which they had never even thought about what it would be used for, is to assassinate people. Now, Chris, Mitch, Laszlo, Jordan, and the rest of their little entourage decide to do something about that. So they sneak into the military base where the laser is now being stored, and they alter it so that when it's set up for a test demonstration, it will in fact target Hathaway's new house. And when the laser is mounted on a B-1 bomber and tested, it heats up Hathaway's McMansion, which pops a ton of popcorn that's been stuck in the house ahead of time by Chris and company. Earlier in the film, by the way, Hathaway had said that he hated popcorn in a scene where Chris was eating some popcorn. 
Now, Kent is inside the house when this happens, and he rides out on an avalanche of popcorn, which keeps popping so much that it ends up destroying Hathaway's McMansion, which is kind of a a silly, goofy ending scene that I believe Mythbusters tried to replicate, and turns out none of that would happen. No matter how much popcorn you pop inside a house, you're not going to destroy the house with it. And then at the end, as Kent rides out on his avalanche of popcorn and Hathaway's McMansion falls apart and kind of popcorn goes everywhere. The youngsters have a popcorn party as Tears for Fears song Everybody Wants to Rule the World plays. Now, Real Genius has some parallel themes with war games, but in a different way. It's a sillier movie in a lot of ways. It's closer in tone and that sort of thing to a typical teen or college party film. However, it does bring up some additional themes of its own that deserve to be mentioned. In particular, Real Genius brings up the issue of the military-industrial complex's involvement with higher education in America. In the context of this light-hearted, often, let's face it, kind of juvenile movie, we see how the American government's massive military machine diverts capital of all types, not just money and physical resources, but perhaps most importantly of all, the capital of brilliant scientific minds, into the cause of building ever more lethal weapons. This is a topic I've probably mentioned in passing various times in this podcast, but I know I raised it in detail and focused on it a long time ago in episode 47, entitled, It's 2015, So Where's My Hoverboard? Real Genius also looks at this thing that's so often happened in the history of the American military-industrial complex, Going at least as far back as the Manhattan Project, this phenomenon where scientists, many of whom are in one way or another, even in even if in kind of a vague way, sort of fuzzy, anti-war, leftish types, these scientists get one way or another duped or bribed or misled or whatever into working on projects that, whether they know it or not, are feeding the war machine. The same war machine that, in principle at least, many of them don't really like or even get along with in terms of kind of simple personality. I mean, just think about it. You've got these almost sort of hippie-ish or fun-loving informal prankster-type scientists working with military and CIA people, things like that. And to me, at least, from real history, this calls to mind in some ways things like MK Ultra, and in particular how a lot of the scientists at American universities who were performing the mind control experiments of that program didn't even really know for sure that they were doing it on behalf of the CIA. Some kind of knew, some maybe had an inkling, but a lot of them didn't know. A lot of them thought they were just doing some psychology experiments and that they were getting funding from some private foundation. But in some cases, these private foundations to fund research are CIA fronts. Again, though, to be fair, some of these scientists knew or really should have been able to make a good guess where their support was coming from. And this whole concept of scientists being used and exploited for this purpose, in some cases, or in other cases, willingly going along, came up a while ago in my America Does Mengele episodes, where I did one about the radiation experiments and another one about the mind control experiments that were carried out by, or in some cases at the behest of the U.S. government during the Cold War. So this seemingly goofy kind of juvenile movie actually is bringing up some of these themes. 
Now, whether everybody watching this movie or not understands all these themes, I don't know, but it's clearly there. Real Genius not only touches on these and other kind of military-industrial complex-related themes, but the film also touches on the theme of being intellectually gifted, and some of the downsides of that, at least in modern America. It does touch on the social awkwardness that oftentimes accompanies having a high IQ, and it also gets in greater detail into the ways in which governments and military contractor companies take advantage of the fact that the gifted, especially when they're fairly young, are often a bit naive and gullible. And so they're pretty easy to take advantage of, to harness their gifts for purposes that they may not really want to have their gifts harnessed for. Again, kind of like I mentioned before. Also, I want to mention something the film doesn't really get into, but I want to mention because I think it is somewhat connected to this whole theme as well, kind of connecting some of the dots on my own. People have often remarked that a disproportionate number of high IQ people are staunch status. They're big advocates of state control and central authority and so on. Which is not to say there aren't plenty of brilliant high IQ people who are libertarians and anarchists, but when you look at the population of high IQ people as a whole, most are clearly not libertarians or anarchists or anything like that. So why is this? I think, in part, it's the arrogance of a really smart person's tendency to think that they know what's best for everybody else, that they know how to quote-unquote fix and quote-unquote plan and quote-unquote engineer society. And thus to think that all it takes to make a real utopia is to give smart people absolute power to force their solutions and preferences onto everybody else. Those stupid ingrates need to have their lives planned for them. See Plato's Republic for perhaps the earliest version of this thinking that we have, where Plato says, yeah, all we got to do is have philosophers be kings with absolute power and they'll make a perfect society. Bing, bang, boom. More recently, there was a Simpsons episode, season 10, episode 22, entitled Lisa's Brain, where Lisa and some other Mensa geniuses take over Springfield to run it basically as philosopher kings, and the whole thing ends very badly. Unlike Plato, the Simpsons writers understand what Friedrich Hayek called the fatal conceit of thinking that one individual or even one group can plan and engineer and run such a highly complex system with so many infinite variables and things like that, and a system composed of thinking beings who will adjust their behavior depending on changes you make to the rules and things like that, that it's simply arrogance, it's hubris to think that you can centrally plan and engineer and run society and expect to get all of the positive results that you want and no horrible, disastrous side effects. So I think that's part of why high IQ people often are hardcore status. They believe in the fatal conceit because they are intelligent and they know it. And so they feel like they should be able to force their ways on other people. It's not as common to find a truly genius individual who has the humility to understand that as smart as they are, they don't know everything and they don't necessarily know how best to run somebody else's life. And that the best thing they can do is to let everybody figure out their own shit and to focus on improving their own life. But I think geniuses often become status for another reason besides just that they're more prone to the fatal conceit of thinking 
that they and people like them can and should plan and run an engineer society, I think it's also a matter of basic public choice economics and rent-seeking. Let's face it, the state is very good at getting some of the brightest people in society, either directly or indirectly, on their payroll. By getting them good-paying, prestigious jobs, either in the state itself or in the corporations and universities that feed and benefit and are intertwined with it, and not just the military-industrial complex realm, but in many other fields. For example, how many top prestigious economists are in one way or another beholden to the state for some amount of their livelihood and prestige and position and so forth? I think a whole lot of them. And coincidentally, most of those sorts of economists just happen to favor interventionist economic policies, if not outright central planning, public choice economics. Geniuses are just as prone to it as anybody else. In fact, as with confirmation bias, geniuses may on average be more prone to it because their intelligence is very slick at justifying their self-interest as being something other than self-interest. Now, one more thing related to genius and often heavily overlapping with it in individuals, this film celebrates eccentricity, often something that's very discouraged and punished and squashed by formal institutions, whether academia or the government or the corporate world or the military. Myself, I love eccentrics, as long as they're not the kind of eccentrics that harm anybody else. And usually, if they are the types of abnormal people who harm other people, they're not called eccentrics. They're called crazies or nuts or something else like that. I think the world could use a lot more eccentrics and could use a lot more toleration and appreciation of eccentricity. Again, not talking about the eccentric who turns into the Unabomber or something like that, but just the person who lives differently in some way or whatever. Real Genius grossed just under $13 million, so a heck of a lot less than War Games. And I'm not sure what the budget was. I wasn't able to look it up, but my gut instinct is it's probably not a hugely profitable film. Real Genius, though, currently holds a 75% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes, so pretty good. Not great, but pretty good. The third and final film I want to talk about in this episode is Short Circuit, which came out exactly 30 years ago from when I'm recording this. It came out in 1986. Again, the film is directed by John Badham, same director as War Games, and it stars Ali Sheedy, who was also the female lead in War Games, and Short Circuit also stars Steve Gutenberg of Police Academy, Three Men and a Baby, and movies like that fame in the 80s. Gutenberg plays a character named Newton Crosby, who is the designer of a robot, and actor Fisher Stevens, who is Jewish in real life, plays Gutenberg's Indian assistant, a character named Ben Jabatuya. And for the role, by the way, Stevens had to dye his hair, wear contacts, and wear darkening makeup in a kind of, for lack of a better term, brown face role. Stevens's character is the comic relief, other than the robot itself, as we'll, we'll see, and it shows how much less political correctness there was just three decades ago that you could have this Jewish actor put on basically brown face and play a funny, amusing, Indian, somewhat stereotype character. Things were just more laid back back then, I guess. Short Circuit opens with military robots being tested by the Nova Corporation, which is 
kind of a Lockheed type company, I guess. And the robots are in this demonstration, they're blowing up military vehicles, and they're called by the acronym SAINT, which stands for Strategic Artificially Intelligent Nuclear Transport. Apparently, the primary purpose of these robots is to eventually be able to deliver nuclear weapons. So again, as with War Games, Badham's film is, at least to some degree, not focused on it as much as War Games, but to some degree, bringing up the problems of nuclear war. And in an early scene in the film, a general is talking to a senator about the robots being used to deliver nuclear weapons to Russia after a full-fledged nuclear exchange has taken place, and the general says such a move would be called Operation Gotcha Last. Now, the tests on the Saint robots are cut short due to an approaching storm, and during that storm, a bolt of lightning causes a power surge, which in turn causes one of these robots, robot number five, to, for lack of a better term, basically come to life. He becomes curious and is able to think for himself, and he quickly leaves the Nova facility. And number five shows a personality that's very similar to kind of a young child who's not yet had their intrinsic nature drilled out of them by soul-crushing institutions. In other words, he's very inquisitive, and he's going on a quest for learning, or as he puts it, input. Input. Number five makes his way to Astoria, Oregon, which was really a favorite 80s movie location. Think Goonies, right? And there he meets a young woman named Stephanie, who's played by Ali Sheedy, who initially thinks number five is an alien robot. Now, Stephanie's kind of a hippie-ish animal lover type who may be an animal hoarder, depending on your point of view, but anyway, Stephanie helps the robot get a lot of input in the form of verbal info, pictures, books, and of course, TV. He learns some, he meaning the robot, um, learns some great stuff from the Three Stooges, by the way. And I call him he because apparently he is male based on his later choosing of a name. Although I don't know how you would tell the difference between male and female military robots. I don't know what they have in the junk department, you know what I mean? Stephanie, when she figures out who number five really is, what he really is, at first she tips off Nova about him, and Nova says that they want to disassemble number five in order to find out what his malfunction is, and number five overhears this conversation. A little while later, number five accidentally kills a grasshopper, and he asks Stephanie to reassemble it. Stephanie tells him that when something is dead, it doesn't come back ever. And like a kid, number five faces the idea of the finality of death for the very first time. Obviously, this understanding does not help his willingness to be repossessed by Nova and to face being disassembled. In other words, he faces his own mortality if Nova gets him back. So number five flips out and says, disassemble means dead, and he doesn't want that, and he's going to escape. Number five steals Stephanie's catering van and gets away, though she manages to climb onto the vehicle, and when they stop, number five insists, number five is alive. Meanwhile, the robot's designers, Newton Crosby and Ben Jabatoya, are on their way to come get number five. Crosby, Gutenberg's character, and Ben, Stevens' character, catch up to Stephanie and Number 5, and eventually they become convinced that Number 5 is in fact alive somehow, just as heavily armed 
Nova security forces in military vehicles show up. The hard-nosed head of Nova security, by the way, is played by the actor G.W. Bailey, who's best known for playing Captain Harris in the Police Academy films, where, of course, he acted alongside Gutenberg, who played Sergeant Mahoney in those films. And Bailey does a great job playing a very similar, practically identical character to Captain Harris, i.e. he's a humorless institutional authority figure who's also kind of a douchebag. After a shootout in which number five shoots back at Nova men using a laser he has on his shoulder, number five gets captured. But he soon figures out how to escape. He catches a pop song on the radio that mentions the name Johnny in it, and he likes it, and from there, he later decides he wants his name to be Johnny Five. Number five manages to find his way back to Stephanie's house, and there he continues to learn via input, and the more he learns, the more kind of human-like he becomes. And at one point, number five and Stephanie even watch and dance along with scenes from director John Badham's breakout movie, Saturday Night Fever. Long story short, number five continues to elude Nova's attempts to capture him. The whole time, he frequently speaks and acts based on things he's seen on TV. At one point, when a bunch of other saint robots that, of course, are not alive like him, try to capture him, number five fights them off, in part because since he's alive, he's able to think a lot more creatively and be a lot more spontaneous and to improvise a lot better than the robots who are still just mindless robots. Now, eventually, Crosby and Ben become convinced by Stephanie and number five that, like I said before, the robot is, in fact, alive. And at one point, Crosby discovers that number five circuitry has been all rewired. And when he asks number five who did this, number five responds, me. And he says something like, I reprogrammed me. Now, think about that for a minute. I think that that silly scene in this silly movie is one that has a lot more depth to it than most people. Perhaps even some of those who wrote and made the film might realize. Think about this for a minute. A mindless drone robot has an awakening, escapes, rewires and reprograms himself. When he's asked who reprogrammed him, he says me. I mean, that's right up there with waking up in the Matrix and getting out of it as a metaphor. And maybe that's one place we all should seek to imitate the humble and kind of silly example of Johnny Five. Wake up, escape, reprogram yourself. Anyway, in that same scene where they're having those conversations, mostly between number five and Newton Crosby, it comes up in conversation that number five cannot and will not kill. Number five says it is wrong. And when Crosby asks him who told him that killing was wrong, number five responds, I told me. Spoiler alert, here's how it ends. Number five fakes his own death by blowing up a saint robot he makes out of spare parts. And then he and Crosby, who's fired by Nova after that, and Stephanie as well, go off to Montana. Now, Short Circuit was a financial success. On a budget of $9 million, it grossed $40 million, over $40 million, I think, in the U.S. alone. Critics didn't like it as much, though. The film currently only holds a 57% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes. But I think it's better than that. While I hardly think that Short Circuit is Oscar material or deserves a spot on prestigious lists of influential films, I think it deserves a bit better rating than 57%. 
Yeah, it's cheesy and kind of silly, and some of it's pretty dated, but some of it's not. And like the other two movies I've talked about, some of it is deeper than you might at first think. Despite its silliness, the film actually deals with a fair number of important themes. And I already alluded to some of those when I talked about number five, having this awakening and kind of teaching himself what's right and wrong. But some of the other important themes that the film brings up, of course, a critical look at the military industrial complex. It also brings up the much deeper questions of what does it really mean to be alive and to think for yourself? That's a theme that very few films bring up. Short Circuit also touches on the dehumanizing effect that institutions have on people and on living things generally, especially the dehumanizing effect that the state and the institutions closely connected to it, such as military contractors, have. It's a theme that's in the other two films that I talked about here as well in various ways. Short Circuit, again, to, to reiterate, deals with the concept of someone waking up out of a robotic existence and then rejecting their situation and seeking to escape from it. You can imagine it's not too much of a stretch to compare this to something like, for example, someone who unquestioningly joined the military and does what they're told for a while, but who then has an awakening of sorts and a crisis of conscience and decides they don't want to do it anymore. Short Circuit also deals with the ability of the creative to outmaneuver massive and powerful but ultimately stupid bureaucracies, symbolized, for example, by number five defeating all of Nova's attempts to get him, including defeating multiple Saint Robot opponents. Now, I saw this movie first in the theater at about the age of five, and I saw it a few times in the next few years, you know, when I was still under the age of 10 on VHS. There used to be these things called VHS tapes, for those of you who are a bit younger than me. There used to be these big bulky rectangles called VHS tapes, and you would rent them from an actual store called a video store, and you'd have to pay them like three bucks or five bucks to rent it for a few days. And if you didn't bring it back on time, they would charge you more money. So those of you who have never known the video store, it was a fun, cool experience to go to when you were that age because you thought it was the coolest thing in the world. But all of the convenience and bang for the buck of things like Netflix and Hulu, non-existent. Anyway, when I was a little kid, you know, under the age of 10, watching Short Circuit in the theater and on VHS, I can to this day specifically remember being emotionally touched and inspired by the ability of this quote-unquote alive robot to outwit and elude and foil and defeat stupid institutional opponents, whether in the form of literal robots or in the form of these kind of robotic Nova military industrial complex people. Now, I just want to wrap up with some concluding thoughts on all three of these films. And um, by the way, this episode was inspired because randomly over the summer, I happened to catch a little bit of short circuit on TV. And I hadn't seen it in, I don't even know how many years. And when I watched it today, I realized the depth of some of the themes in it. And then it also sparked my brain into realizing that there were similar themes in at least a couple other movies that I knew well, War Games and Real Genius. And I thought about, isn't this interesting that during the height of the jingoistic 80s, there were still some decent movies coming out that were raising some important issues regarding the military-industrial complex and all that. 
But anyway, my impression of these three films is that War Games is the only one that's still well-remembered. And Real Genius and Short Circuit, by contrast, are more those types of movies that you recall when someone mentions them, or you catch a little bit of them playing on some random old movie channel on cable, if you're still old-fashioned enough to have cable. But Real Genius and Short Circuit are probably not the movies that anyone would quickly think of and put at the top of their list if they were asked to rattle off some of the very important or influential 80s movies. That said, I think all three films, though, are worth watching, either if you've never seen them or never seen some of them, or if you've seen them but, like, not in 25 years, maybe go back and watch it and look for some of these themes I've been talking about, and maybe you'll catch new things that I didn't mention or didn't think of. Looking at all three of these together, all three of these films show the dichotomy between, on the one hand, the creative, maverick, somewhat liberal, hippie-ish, kind of fun-loving, have-a-sense-of-humor types who create a lot of innovative technology, and on the other hand, the humorless, dour, military-industrial complex people, whether they're actually military commanders or CIA people or they're just the people running the military contractor corporations. This contrast between these playful, perpetual adolescents almost, who are having their genius and their creativity exploited and repurposed by these humorless bureaucrats and thugs, is very important. And I think it's worth thinking about and grasping if you want to understand the full magnitude of the ways that a massive military-industrial complex perverts society and perverts what otherwise might potentially be the evolution of ever-increasing technologies that actually improve people's lives. I do find it interesting that the most common places one finds these sorts of issues being raised in mainstream American entertainment is in these comedic or at least semi-comedic venues. Of the three movies that I talked about in this episode, War Games is the only one that's pretty much not at least partly a comedy. And when I think about it, there are a few really serious fictional mainstream films that have taken on the military-industrial complex and related issues in a highly critical way. I mean, I suppose you could argue that Terminator did, but Terminator, and I love Terminator, the original, and, and part two was pretty good too, but then after that it all just went to shit, but Terminator was mostly focused, at least in my perception, very specifically on the specific problem of the military-industrial complex getting involved in developing artificial intelligence, rather than the broader issue of the military-industrial complex and its negative impacts on society, looking at the big picture. All three of these films I've talked about in this episode have a positive resolution for the situations that they present. They're, they're movies that all, in various ways, end on an upbeat note. But none of them really has a resolution or a solution or whatever you want to call it proposed, even allegorically, for the kinds of issues that Smedley Butler raised back in the 1930s or Dwight Eisenhower raised at the end of his presidency a few decades later, the larger real-world problem of having this massive military-industrial complex and all the implications of that on an allegedly, supposedly free country and society. So... I've got to give these movies credit that with all their flaws, they raised issues which are rarely raised 
in the mainstream of American discourse. And usually when they're raised, it's only by retired generals, people like Butler or Eisenhower, who are apparently the only people whom the mainstream gives enough credibility to allow them to chime in critically on the topic of the military-industrial complex. And especially considering the hyper-jingoistic era in which these films were made, I think those who made them deserve some credit. But as is so often the case with the mainstream anyway, they raise some serious issues, but they lack the radicalism to really explore all of the full implications of these things, to strike at the root, and to offer either a serious potential solution or resolution on the one hand, or to just go ahead and take the hopelessly pessimistic fatalist route on the other hand. But I think these movies, while no one's going to confuse them with Citizen Kane or Chinatown, are worth watching, and I hope you've enjoyed listening to my discussion of them in this episode. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Please check out the website, profcj.org. That's profcj.org. There you can find show notes for all the episodes, links, and other information. You can also email subscribe to the website by putting in your email in the little subscribe box off to the side there. And if you do that, you'll get an email notification every time something new is posted at the website. I promise you won't get any spam or anything uh, from me if you sign up there. You'll just get an announcement every time something new is posted on the website, which most of the time means a new episode, but occasionally is another sort of announcement or what have you. Please feel free to contact me with questions, comments, or other things. The email address is profcj at profcj.org. That's profcj at profcj.org. You can also connect with the show and follow it on social media, like us on Facebook, follow on Twitter, and you can find the show in podcast venues such as iTunes and Stitcher. You can subscribe there. Uh, by subscribing in iTunes, you'll help the show rise in the iTunes charts, and of course that will help grow the show's audience. If you like this show and want to see it continue to keep going and to grow and to improve, there are a lot of ways you can help support it. One is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History podcast to anyone you think might appreciate it. You can also help spread the word by leaving ratings and reviews in podcast venues like iTunes and Stitcher. And of course, we very much need and appreciate financial support. You can go to profcj.org donate to see a whole bunch of different ways that you would help the show out financially. One, of course, is patreon.com profcj, where if you pledge to help out the show with a donation of at least $1 per episode, Remember, not only will I thank you by name in the next episode that I make, but you'll also have access to bonus episodes that I put there periodically that are available nowhere else. You can also make one-time or recurring donations via PayPal at profcj.org donate, and I have a Bitcoin address if you want to donate that way. And of course, a final way you can help out the show financially is when you do your Amazon shopping, go to Amazon through any of my affiliate Amazon links on my website. And if you do that, the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small cut, a little commission from anything you purchase at no additional cost to you. Thanks again for listening. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.
Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.